Well, we have come to the end of our journey, journey to Rome, or at least our journey through Rome, taking most of the highways through, although there are many trails and side paths that uh, could easily be explored as we uh, look at this word, this letter that the Apostle Paul has written. The journey we began in September of 2019 uh, we now come to the end of the book of Romans as we look at uh, Romans 16, verses 25 through 27 this morning. Now, I say we come to the end. We have come to the end of our survey of this letter, although Camper, in a few weeks, is going to continue uh, looking at certain themes that are in Romans. I think he just wants to correct some things that he just doesn't want to say so, but which would be fine. Um, but this is such a pregnant letter. There's so much that is there. And he said that there were some, some things that jumped out at him that had been speaking to him that he also wanted to share. And so uh, not next week, but the two weeks following, uh, he will be recapping or be capping our series. Um, and uh, so we'll continue, uh, though the survey is completed. I feel like the guy at uh, Bush Gardens and the tram, you know, you've reached your destination, but he's moving on further. But uh, uh, and so that's where we are today. Our passage again, Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Hear the word of our God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this day, we give thanks to you for your word and for your grace that this word points us to. We thank you for not leaving us to ourselves to try to discern and to divine by mere instinct. We thank you that you've not left us to our imaginations. But you have given us your word and you have given us your spirit who is able to make the word understandable and apply it to our lives. And so once again, we pray now that by your spirit, you would enlighten us. More than enlightening us, that we might have understanding. We pray that you would be at work within us, that you would use this word, giving us more than understanding, but applying it to our hearts for each of us in our own struggles, in our own way, our own need. Uh, Lord, expose that and show us how your grace is sufficient for all things. And so, Lord, bless us, strengthen us, mature us all until we all reach full maturity in Christ. This is our prayer, which is not in vain. It's a prayer in accordance with your promise. We pray it knowing that your promises are always true. So receive our prayer, receive our worship as we listen for your word. We pray in Christ Jesus, our Redeemer and our King. Amen. As I was looking at this passage throughout the week, I just sort of struck me that there's something special, something unique to us about final words. 
Final words capture our attention. Some of them are profound. Some of them are poetic. Some of them are humorous. Some of them seem to make no sense whatsoever. But when we hear of somebody and we're interested, when we hear somebody who spoke final words. And so I did a quick Google search of final words from well-known people throughout history. I just thought I would share a few of those. The first one that came to mind was of Todd Beamer, who was a passenger on Flight 93 on September 11, 2001. Among a small group of people who recognized that their plane had been hijacked, that they were not going to allow the plane to be taken to the hijacker's destination. And after consulting with other passengers, Todd Beamer's last words were, let's roll. And they forced the plane down in a, in a field in western Pennsylvania. Todd Beamer's words are memorable, even inspirational, as we consider the context in which he expressed them. Nostradamus. Don't know what you think of Nostradamus, how much credibility you give to him, but Nostradamus's final words were apparently this, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. I have no idea how many times he said that, but at least this time he was right. Uh, John Quincy Adams. This is the last of earth. I am content. A man who reportedly knew Jesus. Harriet Tubman, a woman who knew Jesus. Her last words were reported, swing low, sweet chariot. Emily Dickinson says, I must go for the fog is rising. I'm not sure what that means, but it seems appropriate, kind of poetic there. Um, Winston Churchill, and again, seemed very appropriate for the man. His final words were reportedly, I'm bored with us all. Humphrey Bogart said, here's to you, kid. No, um, he, apparently his ex-wife, Lauren Bacall, had come by and visited with him. He wasn't doing well, and he says, goodbye, kid, and hurry back. W.C. Fields has reported two different things. One I can't say in church, and the other says that he was looking for loopholes as he knew the end was coming. Perhaps my favorite was that of comedian Bob Hope. Apparently, when the end was nearing for him, his wife asked him where he would like to be buried, and Bob Hope's last words were, surprise me. And so... Again, final words somehow stick with us, considering the condition and the state that many, of us, that many are in as they utter them. It you know, is not surprising. Many don't make sense. And, uh, and so for whatever reason, uh, though, we give a lot of credibility to them. And that came to mind because what we have here before us this morning are the Apostle Paul's final words. They're not his final words in his life. But they are the final words that he wrote to the church in Rome. And no doubt, these final words were probably more like an epitaph than the final words that come at a, at a point uh, when life is ending and near. But the great thought is given to things that uh, something needs to be said, and he wanted it to be remembered. And so he gave us this word. Now, there's a few interesting things about these, the word that we have in, in, this, in this verse. 
uh, one of which is that he decided that the final words that he wanted to express would come in the form of a, a doxology. A doxology is a word that comes from two Greek words, doxa meaning glory and, uh, and logos meaning word. A doxology is a word about God's glory, a word ascribing uh, glory to God. And it usually comes in the form of a, a, almost a, a song-like expression. So it's not one word, but it's it's something that paints a picture that turns our attention to recognize a certain aspect of, of the glory of God. Another thing that's interesting is that Paul chose in this expression of his doxology to parallel the very words that he used as he began this letter. While the words themselves are not exactly the same, the, the themes that Paul deals with in the introduction, the things that he said that he was going to talk about throughout this letter of Romans, he recaps here in this doxology as he appoints our attention to God, to God's grace, to God's glory. Uh, the, if you were to study, those of you who are, are, are true students, you go back and, and you, you look, you see that there is a parallel. Bible scholars call that kind of literary design a, an inclusio. And an inclusio is kind of like brackets or they bookends, which are to say, this is what I'm going to say, this is what I said, and everything in between is important. So it's particularly interesting that Paul's inclusio is the first verses and the last verses, essentially saying everything, read it all, read it all, read it all over again, and meditate upon this because it is all important. And perhaps the other thing that is of particular interest is that this passage is one long run-on sentence which makes it difficult to thoroughly distill everything that Paul is saying. It is far more pregnant with its meaning and its substance than we are able to give to it. The different translations and the com that, that put it in English all are, are very good, but no one captures the full essence because the commentators or, or the translators, they, you know, we have this need for things like punctuation in order to understand how, how things work together. So each of them have done a good job, and they capture an essence of what Paul is saying, but they're not all exactly the same. So it's not that we shouldn't trust them. They're all very, very good. We benefit from reading multiple, but there is so much that is packed in here, it's difficult to distill everything. But when you do look at it, one of the things that we see is that Paul, in these few words, gives us an outline, a summary of the essence of the Christian life. And so, though we can slice this pie in many ways, what I want to do this morning is essentially follow the flow and, and give you know, kind of highlights, categories, uh, by which we can make our own outline as we see what the Apostle Paul wanted to leave, not only the church at Rome, but all who would read this letter, and even more important than the Apostle Paul, the God who inspired him wanted for the church of all ages to hear and to walk away from this letter with. The first thing and the most important thing, perhaps, that needs to be said is this, is everything begins and ends with the glory of God. That's how Paul begins this paragraph. This is how Paul ends this paragraph. If you look at verse 25, he begins, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, to him. So he's, he's beginning a praise, a doxology, the praise of the glory of God. And, and at the end, in verse 27, to the only wise God, and he's really at 27, he's completing this, the, the, the thought that he has begun in, in verse 25, 
to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Beginning and end, Paul is pointing us to God and he's pointing our attention to the glory of God because everything begins and ends with the glory of God. It's important that we constantly remember that and remind ourselves of that because the Christian life is primarily not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It is about God. It is about God and who he is. It is about God and what he has done. It is about God and what he is doing. It's about God and what he has promised to do. And we are the recipients and we are the responders to what God has done and the glory uh, and, and to his glory. And Paul begins his letter and highlights that. Paul also seems to see of particular importance that we recognize two things about God's glory. Uh, the first is that he wants us to recognize God's I'll call it his ableness. We, we see that in verse 25, to him who is able. And, and when we recognize his ableness, we're recognizing God's power because the word able here uh, in, in the Greek has the, the root word of dunamis, is, which means the, uh, where we get our word dynamite. It is the explosive. It is the all power. It is God's power. And so as we begin this, to him who is powerful enough to establish us or strengthen us, again, depending on your translation, and so Paul is turning our attention and saying, look, we need to recognize that God is all-powerful and he is able to do what he says that he is going to do. He is able even to establish us in relationship with him and strengthening us in that relationship as well. And so as Paul's calling our attention to the glory of God, he's calling our attention to the power of God. And then the second thing that he's calling our attention to by which we, uh, that we are to see and to see God's glory in is the person of Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 27. Because it's really an interesting phrase that we have here that Paul chooses to end this letter with. To the only wise God be glory forevermore, which would be seeming a sufficient statement in itself. It's just, what, what would be better? To the only wise God be glory forevermore. That seems like a complete statement and a complete thought. And, and it would be. Except the apostle, and even more, God through the apostle, wants us to see God's glory in a particular way. He's not satisfied that we would just recognize that God is glorious and that we would respond to the glory of God and just be awed by the glory of God. But he calls our attention and saying, look, God is most glorified, God is best known and is glorified when we see him through the lens of Jesus Christ. And he is not satisfied that we honor God simply as God in general but he wants us to honor God because of what he has done in Jesus Christ. It is, uh, it is kind of like this. We can recognize and be in awe of God through a number of things. Go out into creation, go into the mountains, go to the beach, go somewhere. And many of the things that we are going to see that God created are breathtaking. But you don't need to be long to God. You don't need to be a follower of Christ to be awed by that. You don't even need necessarily to acknowledge that there is a God to be awed and in that sense, honor and give glory to God. It'd be like somebody goes to a museum and they see a painting that just captures their attention and they're just constantly looking at that painting and then somebody kind of walks by and you, know, you, you take very little notice of them and turns out that's the artist of this painting. 
it doesn't matter whether you recognize the artist or even believe him when he tells you that he's the artist of the painting. You're amazed by the painting. And so he is honored by your appreciation of his work. God is honored in a certain way when we recognize his creation. But there's a particular way in which God is honored. There's a particular way in which God is glorified when we see God and we recognize the nature of God, the character of God, the power of God, the work of God, the heart of God. And we only see that as we see God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is very concerned that we would see and recognize the power of God, and that's evident all around us. But he is also ultimately concerned that we would glorify God, that we would see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, we find the gospel. Now, while we begin and end with the glory of God, we also need to recognize that God is glorified by the gospel. That's really the the bulk of what Paul is pointing at in this letter, or and in these final verses. Now, to him who is able to establish, to him who is able to to strengthen us according to my gospel. And so Paul is putting particular attention on the gospel because it is the gospel which is the tool that roots us in relationship with God. That's the establishment thing. You can think of somebody who moves to a new town and you just got to get established. You got to, you know, put down your roots and find your bearings. And that's what this is saying. God is powerful enough that he establishes us. And the same word is also strengthen. And so once the roots are down, we need to strengthen those roots. We need to grow in our environment. We need to grow in our relationship with God and grow in our faith as we navigate this world. It's by the power of God, he's saying. But the tool by which God roots us is the gospel, which Paul had said earlier, is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God that is at work for all who are believing. Not just the ticket in, as if, okay, I did believe, and so that's how I get in. But but our believing, it's a present tense. That power, it continues to be at work. And Paul is drawing our attention to it, to him who is able to establish us, to strengthen us, according to my gospel, we, we see in verse 25. And so it begs the question, what is the gospel? Now, we, we talk about the gospel here all the time, and so most of you I should be able to call in, in the middle of the night and ask you, and you should um, be able to answer my question, hang up, curse at me a little bit, and then go back to sleep But uh, for waking you. Uh, you know, but we, we should know that. But it's, we hear the word so often that we just take for granted that it's widely understood. And the reality is it's not widely understood. In fact, there are many who whether they're followers of Christ or many who are not followers of Christ, who they, they know the word, but they are not necessarily sure of exactly what it means. And one of the reasons I know that is in a new members class, as I was teaching one time in a different church, not here, uh, I asked the question, what is the gospel? And in the silence, I just changed the question to, so when you hear the word gospel, what comes to mind? Well, how do people use the word gospel? And in that changed context, one of the people that it was in, one of the persons in the class said, well, it's a, it's kind of, it's a, it's a genre of music, right? You know, and we were in the hills of East Tennessee, and so gospel music, and, you know, that made sense. And if I'd been in some urban context, they would have also said it's a genre of music, and it would have sounded very different than it does with the banjos from the hills of East Tennessee. But, you know, gospel is a genre of music, or maybe two genres of music. 
that are focused on biblical themes and, 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 and talk about God. Uh, and people understand that. When people talk about gospel music, they even have gospel music awards uh, for a particular style of music. And, and so that word is used, and people have some vague idea of what it means, but they focus more on the music than on the message very often. Another person was describing something, and the best way I would summarize what they were trying to describe, what, what gospel means, would be that, that it's used often as an emphatic declaration. What I mean by this is if I make a statement that seems kind of outrageous, questionable, but possibly believable, somebody might say, well, is that true? And then in our culture, somebody would say, it's gospel. So that means it's absolutely true. No more discussion. Question. Boom. That settles the whole discussion. I just said it was gospel. Okay. Well, then if no matter what, it must be true. We use it as an emphatic because, you know, in one sense, it may, we can understand that because this gospel that is given to us by God is God's truth. It is truth that is necessary for life. So gospel does, in one sense, imply truth. And yet it has kind of evolved in our cultural lingo to stand and almost mean truth on itself, regardless of how it's applied. Now, the reality, as most of you know, is that the word gospel literally means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion. That's what it means. It's good news. It's particularly good news about the person of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul is, is very clear about that in this passage, because as we see what he writes in verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting there is the word and is, is a word that one commentator has pointed out that is, is kind of like an, an explanatory word. It's a word that's used to kind of transition into an explanation. And, and so while and is certainly an appropriate translation of this, it's about the gospel and Jesus Christ, it might give you the impression that it's two distinct things. There's the gospel and then there's proclamation of Jesus Christ. Uh, but other translators have said that it would probably be appropriate for us to translate that word in, in the Greek uh, as in, to, instead of and as that is. And so the passage would read this way appropriately. To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, that is the, the preaching of Jesus Christ or the proclamation uh, about Jesus Christ. It's vitally important that we understand the gospel is good news, but it's not just any good news. The gospel, as it's being used and is used throughout the scriptures, is specifically good news about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he is now doing, and what he will do. And what he will do is as good as what he has done, because he is, in his very nature, being God. If he says something is going to happen, he has the power to do it, and he does it. It is as good as promised, and we anticipate, and we wait with great hope, for all that he has promised that we have not yet experienced. And so the gospel encompasses and is embodied by the person of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. But very specifically, it is what he has accomplished through his perfect life, that's part of what he did, through his death in our place that paid the penalty for our sin, and then his resurrection, which proved and, con and consummated that which he had already paid. And verse 27 corresponds to this. That's why this message of the gospel, this message glorifies God because we see the heart of God. We see what God was willing to do, the sacrifice of God, uh, the love of God, the wisdom of God, the justice of God. We see all the attributes of God all consumed 
in the life and the person of Jesus Christ, and particularly as he died and rose again, so that he would be able to redeem a people like you and me from throughout the world. And so it's important that we recognize that everything begins and ends with the glory of God, and God is glorified, not just by that in creation, but specifically as we recognize his power to do what he determines to do, and ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel that is the good news about all that Jesus is and who and what he has done. But before we move on, I, I want to point something out to you. I began by saying that this is an outline of the Christian life. And it is. But I also want you to look at this passage and recognize that nowhere in this passage does Paul give us instructions or even encourage us to do anything. It begins with God, it ends with God, and it's all about God in between. God is the initiator, God is the sustainer, God is the completer. We are the responders and we are the beneficiaries. But the Christian life from beginning to end, it's not about us. It is about God. And God is glorified as we recognize that. Because the great hope of the gospel is not that somehow I am able to become strong enough to establish myself and kind of root myself and connect myself to Jesus. Or that I am able to pull myself up by the bootstraps and then say, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus. I may fall down. I'm going to get back up and then I'm going to follow him. And then somehow that I'm going to someday have the strength and the ability to just do that the right way and do that the whole way. It's the good news of the gospel is not about my gaining the strength. The good news of the gospel is that when I was dead in sin, God was powerful enough to make me alive in Christ. We know that. We hear that. And I'm going to kind of play on an old illustration that many of you have probably heard. Because an idea in our culture, an idea that permeates many of our churches, well-intended, describes the, the process of our coming to salvation in these terms. Imagine you're out floating in the ocean on a raft, miles and miles from any island or any land. You know that you're in need of being saved, and so a person knowing their need of being saved prays to God to send someone who might save them. Not long after comes along a helicopter who drops down a ladder saying, Climb the ladder, we'll take you to safety. No, thank you. I'm waiting for God. The helicopter goes away, and a few days later comes along a boat and saying, Hey, hop in, we'll take you to safety. No, thank you. I'm waiting for God. And then, when our time to expire and we are issuing our own final words, we pray to God and say, God, I prayed and I prayed that you would send somebody to help me. God says, I sent you a helicopter and I sent you a boat. What else did you want? And many people use that to put the burden on us and, and our responsibility to somehow get saved. And I understand what their intent is, but it misapplies the biblical truths and our own condition. See, the illustration starts out fine. Our salvation may be like floating out in the middle of the ocean far from any, from any land and any place that we can, uh, we can beach and far from anything 
And we are in desperate need of God to send somebody to help. But if God sends a helicopter, rather than us being on the raft and ready to grab a boat, the scripture says we are dead in our sin. And so we're out floating a dead man's float, you know, face down, just kind of spread out. And the helicopter can come and the helicopter can drop a lifeline all day long. But dead people usually don't grab a hold of much because they can't save themselves. They can't do anything to contribute to their own salvation. The boat can come along, but dead people don't jump into boats. See, we are dead in our sins is the condition that we are in. It's the condition that we're born in. And while we need God to save us, God who is able does, but he demonstrates it through his power or his power is demonstrated by the fact that while we're dead in our sin, he makes us alive in Christ and he saves us. That's power, not just providence. And so the glory of God is evident in the gospel and our response to it, not by bucking up and becoming better. The good news of the gospel is not that I was able to somehow become a better person by self-discipline and following the example and the teachings of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that when I was powerless because sin, though I have been forgiven of sin, sin still has its influence on me and I just don't seem to be able to shake it. I'm still enslaved, though I've been set free. I listened to the old master's voice. At one point, I was even an enemy of God because of that sin. But wow, I was God's enemy when I was a slave to sin. And when I was disobedient to him, God was willing. And not only willing, he was able. And he was not only able, but he was willing to reconcile me to himself through Christ Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. Not that I, but he. Not because I have strength, but because I realized I don't have strength. And he who is able, he who is powerful, established me by his gospel. Now, it's important that we also understand this, that what I'm saying there is there's no instruction for us. There's no do this, do this, do this. There's nothing there. God who's initiating, and we respond to what God does. But we also need to see what Paul says here, is that while God is glorified through the gospel that he initiates and that he enacts and he does, the gospel also produces what Paul calls an obedience of faith. We see this in verse 26. Now, to get there, we will kind of read through some of the things that Paul was talking about. So at the end of verse 25, Paul talks about this, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. What Paul is saying there, he's talking about the gospel message is not some idea that God came up with. You know, it's been a long time. Man screwed up in the garden. We've got to figure out something. I keep giving them, you know, I gave them rules. They can't keep the rules. I've given them provision. They don't do that. You know, let's come up with something else. I know. I'll send my son. That's the way that many of us tend to think of it, but the reality is, the gospel was revealed long, long ago. The gospel was clearly revealed immediately upon Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden when God promised to send the Messiah, the seed of the woman. And then every 
covenant that is expressed and every renewal of the covenant that is expressed, we see glimpses of the gospel. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we see promises of this gospel. And yet God, for whatever his reasons, he chose to keep that. Even though it was revealed, it was also disclosed. It was always there, but people were not able to see it for some reason. It's kind of like thinking about one of those oriental carpets. So if you look in one direction, you see one pattern. You look in another direction, you see another pattern. We look back at the Old Testament and we say, well, how can people miss it? It's there, it's there, it's there, and there. It's because we're looking back in the direction where the gospel is revealed. But if we're going chronologically along with it, uh, for whatever God's reasons, people were not able to see it. They, were able, they, they saw it, but they didn't recognize it. And so Paul is saying that you know, for a long time, even though this has, been, has been, been written about in the prophetic writings, it was a mystery. Now, we also need to understand this. When the Bible talks about a mystery, it is not something to be solved. You know, we in our Western idea, we think, ah, mystery, I, I, I love Sherlock Holmes. I, I love to figure it out. You know, can I get it figured out in chapter one, chapter two? Can I figure it out before the end? And, and so we think mystery, and when Paul talks about mystery, the Bible talks about mystery, that's something we're to figure out, things that we don't know that we're going to figure out. And the reality is a lot of Christians spend way too much time trying to figure out the mysteries of the Bible. And I'll save you some time. You're not going to figure it out. Because God says it's a mystery, it's a mystery, and you're not going to figure it out. It's like, well, it's a mystery to most, it's not a mystery to me. You will not figure it out. A mystery in the Bible doesn't mean it's something that you need to figure out. It means it's something beyond your comprehension, beyond my comprehension. It means God could tell you, but you, know, you still won't figure it out. You still won't get it until you've experienced it. And so he just tells us there are mysteries that we, we don't get until in God's time, he gives us whatever is necessary for us to be able to understand and see that mystery. The gospel was one of those things. It was a mystery, even though it was present through all of time. But now it has been revealed. And so that's what Paul is saying. It's been revealed through the prophetic writings, through the apostles. It's been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us here's the reason, here's the aim, here's the goal for which the gospel came. But now but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. See, there's a purpose that God has in mind that he intends for his gospel to produce. And it's important for us to note this, to remember this, that God expects obedience from those who are his. It, it seems like it doesn't need to be said, but that message itself somehow gets missed in a lot of evangelical messages and, and, and a lot of reformed messages. I, I suspect it's because we don't want to confuse people about how salvation comes with, you know, it's all grace. And so if we tell them that there's an obedience is expected that people might confuse and think, well, salvation is about what God does and what I do but it is not faithful, nor is it the Christian faith to think that it's all grace and there is no response that God expects us to offer. And Paul is saying here, God is glorified in the gospel because we see him clearly, but the gospel produces an obedient faith in those who belong to him. Now, that, that obedience of faith I want to look at it real quickly from two different angles. 
so that we have an, uh, a better understanding of exactly what that phrase is telling us. The first thing is that it tells us this, is that it is faith that produces the obedience that pleases God. In, in other words, belief comes before our behavior. Transformation is inside out in the kingdom of God. Somebody can try to follow all of the rules that are found in the Bible and live, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to transform the hearts. And so transformation is the heart out. When there is faith, genuine faith, produces an obedience. But we also need to look at it this way. If you have genuine faith, obedience will result because the gospel changes the heart, which leads to a new way of living. And so if there is no change in your life, when you make a profession of faith in Christ, if there's no evidence of the way things have changed in the way you think, in the way that you act, then it's a reasonable question to ask, do I really have faith? Do I really believe? Have I really, has, has God really been at work within me? See, what we need to understand is this, is the faith that forgives is also, the grace that forgives is, is, this, is, is also a grace that empowers The grace that we sing about that has saved a wretch like me, that has forgiven my sin and my brokenness and passed over them and, and established me with God, is the same grace that is at work within me. The same power that took me from death to life is at work now within me to enable me to say no to whatever the temptations are in my life, to enable me to do the things that I previously was unable to do, to walk in a way of holiness and to grow in that way of holiness. Grace is not just, ah, oh, God will forgive me, that's his job. Grace is God has forgiven me because he's put that on Christ and that same grace is at work within me to transform me so that I might become more like Christ. Listen to how John Piper explains this dynamic. Faith alone unites us to Christ. And Christ alone is the great ground of our justification. Our obedience is the fruit of that faith. If your faith in Christ leaves you unchanged, you don't have saving faith. Obedience, not perfection, but a new direction of thought, affections, and behavior is the fruit that shows that faith is alive. And Piper summarizes this beautifully and quite thoroughly. And it's important that you hear what it is that he is saying because it's consistent with what the apostle was talking about in this passage and through all the Romans, through all of his writings, through, through all the scripture, what God says. It's important that we recognize that perfection is not the mark of whether or not we are followers of Christ, but a new direction in our thought. Remember, Paul says, look, Renew your mind. Conform your thinking to the ways of God, to God's word, rather than to patterns of this world. Sometimes they parallel, sometimes they're in conflict, 
But we, you and me, those who are followers of Christ, need to be aware. What does God say? Regardless of what the world says, and make sure that we're thinking God's thoughts after him. We see the world, we see ourselves the way God says. That's a renewal of our thought. It's a new direction of our behavior. Uh, well, it's a new direction of our, of our affections first. Uh, in other words, we see things that bring us delight, that we enjoy, but then we experience the grace of God and the promise of God and the way of living with God and realize that is much better. And when we see that something is better, we shift our affections from this to something that is greater. And when we shift our affections, our affections are shifted, we always do what we want to do. We go toward our affections. We, we move towards what we love. And if we now love God and things of God, now our behavior is going to walk in a different direction than it does when we love the things for themselves and not loving God in those things. It's in short that we become like a, a new person because we're thinking different and we now desire different things. And because we're thinking and see, thinking different, we see things different and we desire different things, well, of course, we're going to act differently. And, and the pages of the scripture and the pages of history are, are full of examples of people who became like new after they had come to faith in Jesus Christ. One that came to mind that perhaps is one of the most vivid examples in history is from way back, in, and that is of Augustine. Some of you are familiar with the, the Confessions of Augustine. Uh, in that he just opens some stuff up and says, here's my life and here's my struggle and here's what I was like and, and here's what God is doing in me. Now, most people haven't read it. It's a pretty thick, and, and, but it's, uh, but it's a fascinating in terms of looking at his life. Because Augustine, if you're not familiar with him, let's just say he lived a rather um, playboyish life, grew up in a wealthy family. He was quite promiscuous and quite active in his promiscuity. His mom was at home, a godly woman, prayed for him, prayed for him. I have to wonder if at the time she's thinking, this doesn't seem to be doing any good. But in God's time, Augustine was seized and became a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he began to use that incredible intellect that God used him, rather than be thinking just about the law and how to make a profit, but thinking about God and how I can explain the ways of God to other people. And then he had a whole new affections, and therefore he had a whole new life. He became, even in his own, his own description, like a new person. Now, in the Confessions, he talks about an, a time where he was out somewhere in a marketplace. I don't remember exactly where it was, but he ran into an old, let's just say, female acquaintance of his. And I don't remember whether or not she had waved at him and he ignored her or, you know, didn't catch her. But however it was, she wanted to capture his attention. She saw somebody she knew and somebody that she enjoyed. And so she kind of yells out finally, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. To which Augustine responded, yes, but it is no longer I. And then he ran away. Which shows a, a wisdom thing. It's not a matter of I'm going to be strong. Because even, even in the, the incredible maturity that he had and knowledge that he had, you know, there's times where we're weak and it's better to flee than to fall. And so, it, it, you know, he didn't have anything to prove. But, but what that testimony tells us is here's who he used to be and somebody that he's encountering who knew the old him and now by his own declaration, he's not even the same person. He is still Augustine, but he's not Augustine the playboy. He is Augustine the child of God. He is Augustine the follower of Christ. And they seem like two totally different people. And there is an obedience that flows from genuine faith.
that we follow step by step, not marked by perfection, but by faithfulness. Faithful to be obedient to what God has called us to do. And Jesus himself said, look, my ways are not heavy. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no hardship that comes to those who follow Jesus Christ. There are hardships in this world for everybody, believer and unbeliever alike. And most of the difficulties that we all face are, are common to all. But there are circumstances where the followers of Jesus experience hardship because they are followers of Jesus and the people that are not don't particularly appreciate Jesus or our attempts to follow Jesus. But either way, Jesus says, look, my rules, the way that things are, the things that you chafe at so often, even simple things like my Ten Commandments, they're not heavy. They're not intended to kind of keep you from having joy in your life. I remember a number of years ago, I saw for the first time a video of Francis Chan. It was the first that I had seen anything of Francis Chan. And in his earliest video, he was, had a, he was just kind of walking along the beach down you know, the, the slopes in Southern California to get on the beach, and he's carrying a surfboard and talking about theological things. I didn't know who he was, so I was a little skeptical at first um, because, you know, it, it, and he starts talking about the Ten Commandments. And he gets to this point and he says this. He said, look, when God says, do not kill, he's trying to ruin your fun on a Friday night. He's saying, wouldn't life just be a whole lot more enjoyable if you didn't have to worry about anybody trying to kill you? And when God says, do not steal, it's not because he doesn't want you to have stuff. He just says, wouldn't life be a lot more enjoyable and a lot more free if you didn't have worry about people taking the things that you need or even just the things that you have? And his point throughout all of that is that the Ten Commandments were our God's law, all of God's law that we think is so burdensome. The reality is it is simply God's instructions of the way that we're supposed to live life. He's the one that created life. He's the one that designed life. He's the engineer. He's the one who knows how it's supposed to work. And he says, this is the way life really works. If you walk in these ways, you will find more joy. And you'll even have joy in the midst of the difficulties that everybody experiences. It may not make sense. It surpasses understanding. But it has been experienced by people who are followers of Jesus Christ through every country and every generation. Because it's the power of God who is at work within people, bringing them to himself. And he's the joy giver. And so there is a obedience that flows from faith. And it is only the obedience that flows from faith that is pleasing to God. Somebody who is keeping the rules externally and yet doing so simply because they think that that's going to merit them something is missing the point entirely. Because again, we need to understand this obedience flows from faith, but the faith is in the gospel. And the gospel is the declaration of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ alone that we are able to see what God is like, the whole heart of God. And we cannot honor God simply by, you know, behaving in certain ways. We honor God by accepting what he has revealed to us in the person of Christ. And then that faith leads us to obey. And we understand that. What we really believe it shapes what we do. It's not only our affections, it's what we believe. Every one of you believes in physics. I can tell because every one of you is sitting in a chair. And you believe that chair is strong enough to hold you up. If you didn't believe it, you wouldn't have sat on it. Our beliefs shape what we do. We pursue what we have affections for. Our beliefs become the rails by which we behave. Faith in Christ shapes and produces an obedience to life. And I'm going to take a side note here and just say part of the reason this is needed to be stated in the church 
is because many Christian parents, especially in the more conservative churches like ours, are raising a bunch of little Pharisees. What I mean by that is we tell them to keep the rules. And when they keep the rules, we pat them on the back and we tell them how wonderful they are. And every time they do something that is in accordance with the rules, we show our pleasure for them. And we just assume that they're doing it out of some innate godliness, never asking them to look in their own hearts. But if we challenge them, whether they're obedient or in their disobedience, with questions like, so why did you obey or why did you disobey? Now, I know the first time you start doing it, because you have to have a child old enough to be able to answer the question. And when they get old enough to be able to answer the question, the first answer is, oh, I don't know, because, you know, we've been through this three times. But when you persevere in this, and why did you behave, why did you misbehave, or why did you behave, it begins to challenge them to look at their heart. And the reason that many of our children in the church behave is because that's what makes people think they're good people. Because that's what gets them the pat on the back because that's what keeps them from getting out of trouble. But it's not because they have given their heart to Christ. They don't even know what's going on inside of their own heart because nobody has ever asked them. And so we raise well-adjusted children who obey God's rules, but they don't know why. And so when they get the pressure of living out on their own, that begins to crack because there's been no strength that has been cultivated. It is not a gospel faith. It is a rules-based faith because we want our children to look good, but because by them, we look good. And that is not training our children to obedience of faith. And if that becomes you know, generation after generation, no wonder our churches are filled with either Pharisees or people who are rejecting the gospel. Rant over. And we need to see finally this, that while the gospel produces an obedience of faith, God's desire is to see this obedience of faith among all peoples of all nations of the world. It is the basis of our global mission efforts. We see this in the passage here because Paul talks about in verse 26, the gospel has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and been made known to all nations. And that is sort of true. It has not yet been made known to all nations, but God's intent is for the gospel to go to all nations. In the Greek, the all nations part follows the obedience of faith statement. And, but again, people giving translations, it's not that it's, you know, that, that this is, is wrong, but it can rob us of understanding a particular context. But it's consistent with what Jesus said. You know, what is the Great Commission? You know, go into all the world and teach them to obey, and baptize them and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. There's an obedience of faith uh, that Jesus is saying is part of the Great Commission. It's part of the discipleship. It's part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. That faith produces Obedience. The gospel produces the faith, which produces an obedience. And that gospel is not something that we store up in the church, but is to be made known throughout the world. And this statement is to be made known to all people. It says all nations. The word is ethne. Uh, and so to, you know, it's to all peoples, people groups, ethnicities. And this statement is both a geographical and a sociological statement. It's geographical because it is to go to every part of the world. There's not like, you know, it's, Christianity is not a Western thing. Obviously, it started in the Middle East. But the gospel is to go everywhere, every corner of the earth, to every tribe, every tongue, to every people. And so there's a geography. There's no place where God is not interested in redeeming a people for himself. But it's also a sociological statement in, in this way. Because when it says to all peoples, 
there is nobody who is exempted because of the people they come from. And there is nobody who is exempted because of the type of person they are. In other words, it doesn't matter whether somebody is a Jew or a Gentile, which at that time was a category of everything, because there's a Jew and then everybody else was a Gentile. It doesn't matter what your background is. The gospel is sufficient for all and is to go to all. It doesn't matter whether you grew up religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter whether you were a compliant child or a non-compliant child. It, it, it doesn't matter. The gospel goes to all people. It also doesn't matter how you have failed in your past and how you are struggling in your present and whatever failures you might have in your future. The gospel works the same for all people. Because this statement that is saying for all peoples is saying that it, it's not for people who have you know, lived this way, but eh, not if they struggled with this particular sin. There is no one who is so bad. There's no one who has blown it so big that they are beyond the hope of the power of the gospel. At the same time, we need to recognize there's no one who is so good that they are beyond the need of the hope and the power of the gospel. And the gospel is to go out through all of the world until people from every tribe and tongue and nation are called to God. They hear that gospel and they respond in faith and recognizing the glory of God in faith that produces an obedience, a new way of living. And so we look at this passage, even just when the angle that we looked at this morning and we see a wonderful outline of the Christian life. It begins and ends with God and his glory. We need to recognize God as in particularly glorified by the gospel message. It brings him glory and it brings us life. But it's also the power of life that is within us and that power of life produces within us the obedience that we focus so much of our attention on. It is God who initiates, it is God who sustains. We are the responders. It's not that there's no expectation, it's just that it's about God and not about you and not about me. And that obedience of faith, part of that obedience is that we take that message to every part of the world. Some of you are called to go. Some of you are, the, are, are called to take that message someplace else. Those of us who are not called to do that are called to make sure they can get there. And we support them while they go, not just financially, but practically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, prayerfully. That's part of our obedience until everyone knows. So no matter where you are in your journey, we see this outline. But at the end of that road, my prayer for you, for me, for our church, for believers everywhere is that we would cry out like the Apostle Paul, May God get glory. May the only wise God be glorified through all the earth, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we give thanks to you for this word, the entirety of it, and pray that you would open us to embrace it all. Help us in areas where we struggle to believe or struggle to behave but turn us to the cross. And may we see you in your fullness, the fullness of your glory in Christ Jesus. May we see your love in his death and your power in his resurrection. May we know that that same love is poured out upon us 
that same power is alive within us if we are yours. Encourage us. Empower us. We pray. To your glory and for the joy of your church. Through Christ. Amen.